The countdown has begun. From May 14th to 16th, a thousand global leaders will gather in Doha for the Qatar Economic Forum powered by Bloomberg. Join heads of state, influential ministers and leading CEOs to make new connections, gain unique insights and uncover valuable opportunities in one of the world's most rapidly rising regions. Request your invite for this exclusive event at QatarEconomicForum.com. Hi there, welcome back to Out of Office. I'm Malika Kapoor. In this episode, we speak to Chris Hyams, the CEO of Indeed, the world's largest job site with more than 250 million monthly visitors around the world. Chris has a really interesting backstory. He wanted to be an architect when he was growing up and also spent some time trying to make it as a professional musician. But it was his work teaching students with emotional challenges after college that really forged his management style, which focuses on empathy and creating real connections with employees. He spoke to my colleague, Matt Boyle, our senior workplace and management reporter. So here's Chris with Matt on Out of Office. Chris, welcome to the show. Matthew, thanks so much for having me. So, Chris, most of the CEOs I've talked to at Bloomberg have the standard resume, you know, Harvard Business School, maybe a few years consulting for McKinsey or Bain, a background in strategy or sales. But you're very different. You wanted to be an architect in college, and then after college, you tried to be a professional musician. Tell us a little bit about those early years and what you learned about yourself. Yeah, I still look back with some uh, curiosity myself as to how I landed in this seat. A lot of it really was just following what was interesting to me. And so, as you said, I went to college wanting to be an architect. I'm a kid of the 70s. Mike Brady was an architect, and that seemed like a cool thing and had fallen in love with buildings and design and went to school. And I discovered pretty early in my academic career that I had not a shred of talent. And um, that was seemed like an important ingredient that was missing. Where I went to school, there were two different degree programs. One was in studio and everyone did that for a couple of years. And then the other one, which I switched into when I realized that I wasn't going to hack it as a design major, was history and theory. So I ended up getting a degree essentially in art history, but um, focused on architecture. I had met at the time in school, my then girlfriend, now wife, who moved to a small town in Vermont. I grew up in Los Angeles. She grew up in New York City. We both decided to get away. So we moved to a town of 3000 people in, in Woodstock, Vermont. And I ended up teaching public high school in special education I'd actually had a job briefly before that, right out of school for about six months before moving out there, working at an adolescent psychiatric hospital, working with young addicts and alcoholics. And so I was drawn to to working with kids and trying to to be of service, trying to be useful to them. Tell us about that first job right out of school, the one at the psychiatric hospital. Why did you do that? And, And how did it help shape your management style? I didn't know what I wanted to do, um, although I, I had had a set of experiences myself where uh, I had been through some challenging times and had gotten a lot of help. Um, I had some uh, mental health challenges and was able to, through the help of others, really make some significant changes in my life. And that 
gave me some inspiration to want to be helpful to others. I had through a mutual friend this opportunity to to get a job to work in this um, adolescent psychiatric hospital, and it was a really it was a really profound experience seeing so clearly how people with really all of the the sort of opportunities available to them could still struggle for for reasons that were not related to circumstances. And in some cases, there were kids that had awful circumstances, but in some cases, there was just something that, um, you know, is different about how they were able to adapt and respond where they needed help and support. I learned so much from the folks who had been doing this for a very, very long time, mostly about uh, compassion and, and patience and about how to look at a person, not based on their behavior, what they're saying and what they're doing, but on um, what is going on with them and how the things that they were struggling with influenced how they showed up. And I was able to, to see in a lot of them some of the things that had been challenging for me. And it, and it really just changed the way that I, I look at other people. We can all rattle off a list of the, of the people who annoy us. Um, or who we resent. And, and what I learned at that, at that pretty impressionable age was when someone or something is disturbing to me, there's an opportunity for me to see what, what am I bringing? What lens am I bringing to that that is making me view this person just through their behavior as opposed to trying to see what's going on with them and as an opportunity really to, to connect as a, as a human and I've learned a tremendous amount about myself through those experiences. And I think that, that that has helped me as a parent and has helped me as as a boss. It sounds like you learned a lot about empathy as well, which is a topic that's getting a lot of attention now from companies due to the stress and anxiety created by the pandemic. How do you show empathy as a manager? Yeah, so, I, so that has um, really been kind of, again, how I approach pretty much everything that, that I do. What I tried to bring as a, as a parent to my kids was when they were going through difficult times, and especially if they had you know, done something that they weren't being honest about, or they had gotten, in, gotten sideways with, with a friend or with a teacher, that when I just told stories about myself having screwed up far worse <laughs> than, than, than they had, uh, it, it had a, a couple of, of really powerful effects. Number one is when you're in a in a parent and child relationship, or if you're in you know, a manager and employee relationship, there's this inherent power imbalance. And I think it's, it's human nature to get defensive when you're dealing with someone that has some power or control over you. And when someone is struggling with something, you know, what's actually most important is to sort of just accept what's going on and then look at what can we do from here as opposed to you know, regretting the past or, or, or trying to run away from it. And by putting myself uh, ideally at, at, you know, the same level as someone as opposed to above them by saying, hey, look, I've, I've done this too. I've done it far worse. And, and I turned out okay. And here's how I got through it. People I find are much more likely, or I'm certainly much more likely to respond positively to someone making a connection with me and showing me a path out of something as opposed to pointing out where I've screwed up. And so when I first became a manager, I had been a software developer for three years. I was working in here in Austin at this company called Trilogy. And partially because I was 
older than other folks. I'd been coding for a few years and they asked me to step in as a, as a manager. I had no experience. I had no idea what to do. And I actually had not really ever had a great manager that I could point back and say, this is what it looks like. And so I just tried with that same approach when someone was struggling. My greatest asset is all of the things that I have screwed up in, in my career. And, and I had especially been, I'd been coding five minutes before. So I really knew what what the problems were and where I had made mistakes, and I was able to to share that. I found that that worked, and and I find it it works really well today. We could do an entire podcast of of things that I've screwed up in my career. One of the ones that I talked about that that's really was a really important one is I came to Indeed eleven years ago as the uh, VP of product, um, coming from the the tech world, and and when I stepped out of that role and moved into a role. Prior to, to this current role, um, I, I was, became president where I was responsible for the, the tech side of the business, so product and engineering, and then also the client side of the business with sales and, and client success. And when I did that, I, I hired someone as my backfill to, to run the product team. And for the first two years he was there, I completely failed him in giving him the support and the air cover he needed to be successful. And, and from my lens at the time, he was just not doing the job the way that I thought it should be done, which really was just the way that I did it. But I didn't hire him because he was like me. I hired him because he had a different set of experiences and had worked at other places and had a different perspective. And what I did was, was judged him through the lens of how I was doing the job and how I would do it. And I did that in front of other people and pointed out all the things that was that were not right. And I try to take a step back and say, what is, what is my part in this and, and how am I contributing? And what I saw, unfortunately, very clearly, very quickly that I had neglected to see for the previous couple of years is that I did not offer him the same generosity that the guy who hired me, Ronnie Kahan, our, our co-founder and CTO, when I came in, I replaced him as the head of product. And Ronnie didn't do any of those things to me. He ensured that every time we were in a room together with a group of other people and someone asked him a question, he said, Chris, what do you think? And he set me up very clearly to have the, the freedom and the responsibility to make my own decisions. And if I screwed something up to learn from it and correct it, but he didn't try to judge me through the lens of how he had done that job. So I failed to do that for Raj. And I ended up having a conversation literally just last week with someone who was having exactly the same scenario where there was someone they hired who wasn't doing things the way that they expected they should. They were struggling, they were getting poor results. And instead of telling that person how they'd screwed up, I just told this story. And uh, I think it was helpful. And I know that you know every time I, I tell a story like that, it does help people see that it is possible to, um, to, to be okay after having screwed something up and, and, and admitting it. And, and because I, I think that the most frustrating thing for me is, is being around people who refuse to accept that they have made a mistake and to, uh, to acknowledge that. Because I, I frankly, I, you know, I've, I've had a lot more opportunity to learn from errors than I have from things that I've, I've done right. There are 11 million job openings in the U.S. right now. 11 million. That's more than one job opening for every American who wants to work. Economists thought over the summer that the expiration of the emergency federal unemployment benefits would spur more people to find work, but that largely hasn't happened. 
So why are there so many jobs going unfilled right now, in your opinion? Yeah, so there's a, a number of, of factors that, that go into that. The, I think the first thing, just to point it out, because there has been a lot of talk about the unemployment insurance and, and what the impact was, our own data did not support that that was a primary factor, both in the research that we did talking to job seekers, that was actually one of the least cited reasons that people were staying back from looking for work. Throughout most of this year, the, the primary concern that people had and why they were staying out of the workforce was fears about COVID. And that showed up in a couple of different ways. One was fears for their own safety. Um, and that was what conditions at the workplace might be like, um, or if they were compromised and might not have been able to, to get a vaccination. The other thing was uh, the concern about childcare. And as we've seen, a, a big trend during this time has been the women have left the workforce at a much greater rate than men have. They are often, unfortunately, in a primary care position over kids. And with schools, closed for a while and then opening and, and closing based on, um, on outbreaks, many people were staying home because they did not think they'd be able to, to take care of their kids. And that was very consistent as the top reasons. Our latest survey, which was in September, was the first time that we saw that drop down. And now actually the number one reason, which still might be related, um, is that the most respondents are saying that they have a spouse that does have a job and is working, and they don't need to be going back to work right now. So then the, the big question is, what, what's going on at a, at a larger sense of so this, this idea of the great resignation? And, and I think we look at it maybe a, a little differently, but there clearly are, there's a lot of people who are leaving work, and I think that there's a few reasons. Number one is just the simple fact of pent-up demand. So Typically, you're going to have a certain amount of turnover in any given year. And last year, with all of the uncertainty about the economy and the world, far fewer people were leaving their jobs than had in previous years. So some of what's happening in 2021 is a bit of a catch up from 2020. Another thing that's going on, though, is that people have had an extraordinary opportunity to reflect on what's most important to them. So many people have experienced loss directly or um, at least know someone who, who they've lost during this period of time. People have had, for the lucky third or so of people who work in fields where it can be done remotely, like, like you and me, people have had the opportunity to, to have additional flexibility where they can leave work to go pick up a kid. They can take care of someone who's sick. They could just be there when, when a new washer and dryer is being delivered. And having that flexibility has, has become important to them, but also to think about what they really want. And so many people are feeling now that they'd rather be close to family or live in a place where they have uh, a lower cost of living and a higher cost of, you know, a quality of life. The other thing that, that I think has happened in a lot of cases is people in their individual company that they work for, or even in the field that they work in, uh, to be able to see when, when the chips are down, how are they taken care of? And some people found that, that their employers really showed up for them to put their health and safety first and, and take care of them during this time and, and not just physical health, but mental health and all the other things going on. And in other cases, that wasn't um, available from an employer or for an entire field. I mean, I, I know several people who work in the restaurant industry where 
the realization that there is no safety net for so many restaurant workers really got people thinking about what do they want. And so we've been kind of thinking of this in, in terms not of as a great resignation, but more of the, a great reevaluation. And that is leading to, uh, I think, a big shift for some employers, but a lot of employers who are not, who are just really hoping that things go back to the way they were and, and are doing business as usual. I think they're going to ha- have a much tougher time uh, hiring than, than they have before because job seekers have, have gone through a bigger change in the last two years in terms of what they want than in probably the last decade or two. The countdown has begun. From May 14th to 16th, a thousand global leaders will gather in Doha for the Carter Economic Forum powered by Bloomberg. Join heads of state, influential ministers, and leading CEOs to make new connections, gain unique insights, and uncover valuable opportunities in one of the world's most rapidly rising regions. Request your invite for this exclusive event at QatarEconomicForum.com. So I was talking about the return to the office with someone and he said, you know, the employees who all went home in March of 2020 are not the same employees who are coming back today. And I think that's very insightful. There's this huge disconnect in all the surveys we see between executives who largely want people back at the office, at least most of the time. And I'm not just talking about Wall Street and Jamie Dimon, that whole, you know, if we don't see you, you're not working hard, that old school mentality. It's across the board. So there's this disconnect between the executives and then the rank and file workers who, of course, don't want to be told that they're now required to go back in the office three or four days a week. How do you deal with that as a manager? We see that very clearly there are a number of employers who are looking to hire exactly the same way that they did before, meaning that, you know, the the old tools of what is on your resume, where did you go to school, what degree do you have, where did you work before? is still the same lens that many people have because those are maybe more effective than any other tools that they have. But for example, at Indeed, a couple of years ago, we dropped the degree requirements from almost every single job that we have, uh, except for the ones, you know, if you're working in the legal department, you, you have to have a law degree or you, you need to you know, have a finance degree to work in finance. But everything else we dropped. And what we found is we just suddenly had more candidates and actually more interesting and, and better candidates. Um, certainly from a, from a diversity perspective, when you have a specific degree requirement or a degree requirement from one of five schools, you're going to end up with a lot of folks that end up looking exactly alike and looking a, a whole lot like your business today. And, and we're much more interested in trying to see what people will add to our business as opposed to how they're going to, quote, fit in. I totally get that dropping the degree requirement expanded your pipeline of talent. But what about your retention rates for the people you hired? I imagine they were entering a corporate culture where a lot of the people who were already there had been hired under the old degree requirement. So was there a little sense of, you know, a culture clash there when you have these new people coming in? Yeah, we haven't seen any difference there at all. So, I mean, I can't say for certain. Uh, and and look, I when I worked at this company trilogy back in the 90s, we only hired people out of the top 10 schools and we, we got a lot of really smart people. And then um, in my time since, 
I've worked with more brilliant people that didn't go to one of those schools than, than the ones that did. And so I, I've completely shifted my point of view. The other thing that I've seen is that people who make it to a level where they're up for jobs like this, that didn't come through some extremely privileged and rarefied path, um, they got there because of their skills and because of their capabilities and their determination, not because someone saw, like I am 100% clear that a lot of the opportunities that have come to me in my life have come because that line is on my resume. You know, to be totally frank, I was a terrible student when I was there. Uh, this is when I was going through some of my own personal challenges. The most impressive thing was the fact that I got into that school, but um, there was nothing about my experience there that made me more qualified for what I'm doing. And yet I know because it's there and because of all the privilege that I had that, that got me to that point where that, that line is on my resume, that I got advantages that other people didn't. And so I actually think that, that people who have pedigree sometimes have less drive and intellectual curiosity and determination because they didn't have to work as hard as other people. So what I've found in my own personal experience is that the people that don't have the, the backgrounds that immediately jump out on a resume are, are better uh, employees and they're, they're better collaborators. And I, I think it has changed our, our business for the better. So many companies right now are looking for advice on this very complex topic of getting people back to their desks, at least part-time, without losing the flexibility that we've enjoyed during the pandemic. You've been through this, and, and like many companies, you guys have had to delay your return to the office date several times. I believe it's now been pushed out to July of next year. Can you tell me a little bit about your decision-making process there? We, we sent everyone home uh, a little early. It was just about a week in advance, but it felt it felt like we were a little on a limb. So March 3rd of 2020 is when we made the decision to send everyone home because we had seen cases already in, in, in Singapore and, and had people who had traveled from that office to Dublin and Sydney. And we saw pretty early on the complexity of what it would take to actually keep people safe when we didn't know anything about what this virus was going to be. We sent everyone home and we have had basically all of our employees have had the option to, to continue to work from home since March 3rd of, of 2020. We have opened offices over the past se uh, several months when things have gotten safe for people who wanted a place to, to come to. And we've ended up actually with Delta coming back, shutting all those offices down again. So we are opening our first set of offices now again, as numbers have come back down in, in November. And hopefully by December, we'll have at least half of our offices around the world opened up. What we found, so I'll say a couple of things. Number one, when, when we sent people home and adapted very quickly to working remotely, what we found was we could be extremely productive and extremely innovative and extremely collaborative working remotely. And it got us to see very quickly that um, the way that we had always operated, where we expected people to be in an office primarily and occasionally with a little flexibility, wasn't necessary. So we made decisions long-term that... Um, will be coming into effect, as you said, uh, in July of, of 2022 is the first time we're going to ask people to come back. But uh, the vast majority of the company, more than 70%, has the option to be fully remote if they want. And the other 30% will want in an office a couple of days a week, but then it will be up to them to decide. What that means is that our expectation for how we're going to work is that we're going to be in a primarily hybrid environment. And that is actually a big shift. And we haven't had the chance really to test that out yet. And so for us, it's relatively easy to have everyone remote. And actually, 
everyone remote solves some interesting problems to having everyone in an office, especially when you have folks in, in you know, 30 different cities and 15 different countries, which is oftentimes we used to have a room full of people in Austin and then on a video screen, two people in Connecticut and one person in Seattle and one person in San Francisco. I started out my career as that one remote person when I was working as a software developer for Trilogy. My first few years, I lived in the Bay Area and I was the one remote employee in the company. And, and I know how hard it is to you know, have to say over and over again, sorry, I can't hear you on the other side of the room. Can you speak up? Or knowing that you're missing out on these conversations. So we kind of eliminated that. And, and overnight, we got to see that everyone is just a rectangle on a, on a screen and everyone shows up basically the same way in, in a meeting and there's no one missing out on the hallway conversations. So for us, when we come back, we're still going to have to navigate all that. So we have a lot of hypotheses. We have a lot of really smart people. We're doing a lot of research. We're talking to a lot of experts, but I think that anyone who claims right now to know what the future is going to look like is, is probably not right. And so we're, we're trying to approach the work environment very much the way that we approach our products which is experimentation and testing and gathering data. And so we're running a a number of different experiments on what a, number one, what do people want in an office? If you have the choice where you can be at home or you can come in and it's up to you, what would draw you to want to come into an office? Why would that be uh, a better choice? So for some people, one thing that's really clear is that the work from home is not great for everyone. We have a lot of employees who have little kids at home and Certainly, you know, during, during COVID, when they had other kids who they had to school, that was particularly difficult. But if you have kids who are not in school yet, having a quiet environment uh, where, you can, where you can work and talk to adults is, is actually really great. So there's some people who are just going to want to come anyway. Um, there are some people who have a small place and they're working at their kitchen table and to come in and have a nice desk and to uh, have, a, have a place where they can they can eat and drink coffee. I mean, that, those are things that will draw them back. But for all the other people for whom working at home is really comfortable, then the real question is, what is it about the, the collaborative environment? What type of spaces do we need? I couldn't tell you right now if everyone's going to want to, after being apart for so long, be crammed into desks right next to each other because they just want the buzz of being around people or have people got really comfortable working with a little space around them. and these long tables with you know people spaced every three feet, that's not going to work anymore. And people want a little more space and they don't need a couch because they've been working on a couch for a couple of years. And so the way that we're approaching this, we, we put together a, a sort of future office incubator where we invited people from all over the business, from different functions and from different uh, countries and cities around the world to teams. We had four different teams and we had them, we paired them up with our real estate team and then with outside designers and architects to basically come up with ideas of what they thought the future might look like. And they came back and they presented to the executive team. And then we ended up putting together a plan for a set of experiments that we're going to run. We come back in. So we're going to pick a handful of floors in different offices and set them up in, in different ways. So some will be tightly packed with uh, a bunch of creative collaborative spaces. Some will give people more space. And some, some, one of the ideas was to have a quiet floor, kind of like the, the quiet car on the, on the train, 
where some people are going to want to go, where you can just bring your laptop and, and not be bothered by other folks. And part of the expectation is there's not going to be one answer. I think what we're going to learn is that we need to present a handful of different options because people have different work styles. So one of the things that's actually been really interesting for us is, is we have all of our offices around the world that we have to figure out how we're going to adapt them so they work. But we also have a new office building going up in Austin. It's going to be our, our, our new headquarters. Um, we're very excited about it. Indeed Tower is a beautiful building. We're going to have the top 10 floors. And the building was under construction and we stopped our side of, of the process at the beginning of the pandemic because we realized that whatever it was that our plans were and what we were going to build and even how many offices and conference rooms that we were going to have, that we had no idea what we were going to need. So we, we waited a year. We did all this research and what we've come up with, because now it's time to start construction again, and we still don't know, and the office is going to be ready in probably Q1 of 2023. Um, we're going to learn a lot between now and then. We decided to change the entire approach to be modular and flexible, because we don't know what the answer is. So we're actually building in very few solid walls. We've found a number of different really creative vendors that are building these different modular systems that will allow us over a weekend to reconfigure an entire floor from a bunch of smaller spaces to larger spaces and to and to really sort of adapt and and learn as we go and so i think it's going to be a really exciting time and it's also going to be a little nerve-wracking for some people The countdown has begun. This May, a thousand global leaders will gather in Doha for the Qatar Economic Forum powered by Bloomberg, held in conjunction with our official partners, the Qatar Ministry of Commerce and Industry and Media City Qatar and premier sponsor QNB. Join heads of state, influential ministers and leading CEOs to make new connections and gain unique insights. Learn more at QatarEconomicForum.com. You guys are global, but you do have a large operation in Austin, Texas. So can you speak a bit just about the current political climate there in Texas? What have you heard from your folks about that? And, and is that maybe going to influence your decisions in terms of how much of a presence you want to have in the state of Texas going forward? Yeah, so we have we hear a lot from our employees. So since the start of the pandemic, one of the things that I did starting on on, on day two was to just have an open Q&A with the entire company. And so we have a, a, we have a Zoom Q&A where um, we had, you know, I think that first night, probably 5,000 people and they could ask questions in a tool. People would vote them up. And then I just answered questions for an hour. I've done that basically every Wednesday since then. And uh, it's what I think of as low tech, high touch. Uh, there's a whole host of different ways to, to stay in touch with people, but there's nothing more effective than just actually listening and, and answering questions. So whenever anything is going on in the world, pretty much in real time, we get a, a point of view from employees. And this is something that, that certainly a number of people feel really passionately about. It is upsetting from a perspective of, you know, first of all, we, we focus on the health and safety of our employees and what are the things that we can do to help support them based on, on their needs. When it comes to engaging 
in political debate. It is something that we as a business really try to be clear that our our purpose, I, I view indeed almost as a utility in that we're here to help everyone get a job, regardless of their point of view on political, social, moral, philosophical issues. And as a business, we've decided not to step into these things on the outside because I want when someone is coming to Indeed to look for a job that they might need to be there and to not have people pull out of Indeed because of a particular point of view that the company might take. One more question, if I could, Chris. You've been, you've been doing these Ask Me Anything sessions every Wednesday with thousands of employees. What's the strangest question you've gotten from an employee? We get all kinds of, uh, of, of off-the-wall and crazy questions, but most of them are about the business and what we're doing. And then about these things going on in the world around them that people are trying to make sense of. I think the greatest thing to come out, the greatest benefit from this whole experience for us is that when we're sitting and, and seeing the rectangles on a screen, we're literally seeing into people's lives. We're seeing you know, your, your house, we're seeing the dirty piles of laundry, the, the dogs running around, the kids yelling in the background. And everyone, I think until recently, would show up at work with with some kind of game face on and whatever else that we were carrying. And everyone has always had a whole sack of, of worries and concerns on their back. And they just kind of sort of tuck it under their shirt and come in and, and, and act like everything is okay. The last year and a half, if you ask someone, how are you doing today? You get a real answer compared to, I'm doing great, which was the answer that we used to get. And so my, my real and sincere hope here is that people have, have found this place of vulnerability to be open and honest about what's going on because they're seeing what's going on with everyone else. And my real hope is not only do we not go back to the way things were in terms of how we show up in an office, but that we actually show up and ask each other, how are you doing? And, and want to hear a real answer and being willing to share ourselves what's going on and that that's something that we can carry with us into the future. Thanks for sharing some time with us, Chris. Thank you so much for having me, Matthew. That was Chris Hyams, CEO of Indeed, in conversation with my colleague, Matt Boyle. I hope you enjoyed listening in. Remember, Out of Office is on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, the Bloomberg Terminal, and of course, Bloomberg.com. I'm Malika Kapoor. This episode was produced by Laura Carlson. We'll see you again in two weeks. Till then, stay well. And as always, thank you for listening. in San Francisco or virtually on May 7th for The Future Investor, 
Data-Powered Transformations. This 2024 event series will examine how data is not only playing a pivotal role in investment decisions, but serves as a driving force behind the construction of innovative, investable enterprises. This series is proudly sponsored by Invesco QQQ. Register at BloombergLive.com slash futureinvestor slash radio.